Amen. We serve a great God and so thankful for what Christ did for us on the cross, thankful for the love of our Heavenly Father that would send His Son to die for us. So thankful for this meeting so far this week. We've had some wonderful preaching from God's Word, some wonderful fellowship. Brother Clayton was a blessing to us on Sunday and Monday, and I'm very thankful for his ministry with us and uh, him sharing God's Word with us. We're very encouraged by it. Tonight we get to uh, have Brother Brian Sams preach for us, and he'll be with us tonight and tomorrow, and uh, looking forward to what God has laid on his heart. We've been friends now quite a while. I guess it means we're getting old. I don't know. But uh, we met when I was a counselor at Southland Christian Camp. I think it was the same summer I met my wife. And so I'm more thankful for meeting my wife that summer than meeting Brian that summer. But uh, I'm thankful for him as well. And uh, he's been a blessing to me and encouragement to me along the way. And I hope we've been able to do that a little bit for him as well. And uh, several years ago, I've been three years now, right? Uh, the Lord moved him to Jacksonville, Florida, where he became the pastor of the church that's known as the River City Baptist Church now. And God is doing good work there, and we were just enjoying talking today about people coming to Christ, people growing in the Lord, and uh, he had, had a pretty neat idea. They've got a, a baptistry. They roll outside and just do their baptismals right outside. So when you're in a church that wasn't built with a baptistry, it kind of works well that way. So thankful for what the Lord is doing there. And I hope that he'll be an encouragement to you. I know he will be because he's going to be sharing God's word tonight. So I hope you open your Bibles, open your hearts, open your ears, and uh, be ready to listen to what God has. Brother Brian, you preach for us tonight. Hello? Oh, there we go. Do I need to start that all over again? You guys probably heard me anyways, didn't you? I, I serious, though. I felt like as a, as a church uh, with a missions heart and missions mindset, if there was somebody that we felt confident was going to come, and do a work for the Lord in the city. It was going to be Brother Will. So we were thankful to uh, be a part of it in the early days. And, and, and now by prayer and just fellowship, uh, so excited to see what God's doing uh, in the church. And it, it's a great blessing uh, to be with you. Uh, I, I've been there now at our church for just over three years. And in that three-year period of time, we relocated our facility and and our name uh, was changed from an, an older uh, church that was kind of had a sour name in the community. And God's done some amazing things at our church as well. We're so excited, and, and we were kind of swapping stories all day. It's neat to see what the Lord's doing. In your case, in a brand new church that just got started, in our case, a church that had been around for 50 years but needed to be restarted, and uh, it's been amazing to watch both stories kind of unfold. And uh, my wife and I went there with, um, uh, with our two children, and they're now 12 and 7, doing great. And then just this last week, God opened up an opportunity for us to welcome a one and a two-year-old into our home. And so we got, we got a brand new set of kids in our house. So, and so I left. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We, we, uh, we knew that uh, this thing came on us all of a sudden. It was a, a group of or a brother and a sister that um, were going through some hard times with their family and needed to be placed in a, in a better situation. And so God opened our hearts to open up our home. And uh, pray with us about that, would you? That we would uh, be able to even adopt these kids and take them and, and just uh, move them forward. It's amazing to see what just a little TLC will do in a few days. And it's exciting to see them uh, uh, coming along and uh, being loved on. So we're, we're so thankful for what God's doing in our church and more importantly in our lives and our family. I was uh, at a pastor's meeting recently in Virginia. And it was one of those pastor's meetings where uh, it's kind of like a panel you know, it was a big, big square, tables were set up, and, you know, I was on this panel 
Uh, and so I was supposed to be able to offer these people something, evidently, which, which I felt like I shouldn't have been sitting at that side of the table, but I was. And, and what they did to start it, to start the, um, the fellowship, they, they had everybody go around and, and basically tell them who they were and what church they pastored. And then they said, tell us one thing you hope to get out of this day. And so the guy right next to me started, he's, he's planning a new church in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and he started, and he said whatever he wanted to learn. And then it just went, well, since the guy right beside of me went first, that meant I was going last. So I'm just listening to all these guys, I'm listening to what they're saying, listening to what they wanted to learn, you know, from the day and so on. And by the time it got to me, it was, I heard all these things. I want to learn how to keep teenagers in the, in, you know, in the church after they graduate high school. I want to, I want to know how to, how to, how to, how to grow a church in the rural, in a rural community. And I want to, I want to get over the 200 hump and they're just, I mean, all this stuff, you know, all these, all these things people are talking about. And finally, you know, it, it, as I'm listening, I'm going, yeah, that, that, that's probably, that's probably a fair thing to learn. But then when it finally got to me, and I said this in all sincerity, and I mean this, I said, I, I don't want to share or come to this meeting to, to really offer you anything that's happened in the church or what I hope to happen in my church. The greatest thing that has happened in the last three years is that I have been transformed. Amen. And that transformation has been the greatest thing for me and the greatest thing for my church. And that's going to kind of guide our conversation even over the next two nights is that... Uh, that really, when it comes down to a revival, we could talk a lot about the church, and we will some. But really, what has to happen fundamentally is that God has to do something in your heart and in your life in order for that to really take root corporately. So it's kind of like when we talk about revival, so to speak, we always talk about it almost in a national or even an international sense. And really, the fact of the matter is that never happens unless it is first and foremost personal. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit over the next couple of nights. Okay, would you mind standing, if you don't mind, uh, as we read God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to read beginning uh, in verse number 10, uh, where the Bible says this, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. I want to speak to you tonight on this subject, if I may. The danger of division. The danger of division. That's really what Paul's talking about here. Very clearly. He was concerned. And you know, at the outset of this, what, when did you start the church? Is it two years, three, two years now? So, so, so they always say the first couple of years of a church are exciting, electric, 
And it's, it's much like marriage, okay? There's, there's, a, there is, there's a honeymoon period. There really is. I just finished my third year. Honeymoon over. I mean that. And things get real. And things happen. And tonight may be prescriptive. It may be descriptive. But it is definitely how God wants his people and his church to be. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we study his word together. Could we, Lord, would you please use your word tonight in our lives? Would you help me communicate it well? And I pray uh, that you will just pour out your spirit on your word and then into our hearts as we hear, process, apply, and be transformed by the truth that we hear tonight. It is for these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen and amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. I appreciate that. The Battle of Gettysburg was perhaps the most tragic battle in American war history. There were 51,000 casualties, 23,000 Union soldiers, and 28,000 Confederate soldiers perished in that battle alone. Combined with all other battles in the war between the states, there were approximately 600,000 casualties in that war alone. Nearly 2% of the entire population of America died. It exceeded the bloodshed of the next most deadly war to Americans, World War II, by nearly 400,000 casualties. It should be very obvious to all of us why the American casualty count was so enormous in the Civil War. The answer is obviously because it was a battle between the states. And on one side of the line, there was a brother. And on the other side of the line, there was a brother. And on one side of the line, there may have been a father and a son or a cousin and a cousin. That war was so tragic because it was a war amongst itself. Jesus made this statement in his ministry, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And one of the most interesting analogies that God gives us of the church is that the church is a family. And I know in our culture that doesn't always resonate like it would have when Jesus gave it in the first century. In our culture, family units have disintegrated for the most part. And families don't always function in the lovingly unified way that God uh, showed us in his word. But the fact of the matter is the word family as a picture of the church is one of the most endearing terms that God could have given the church. In fact, God tells us in his word that one of the most predominantly important characteristics of any church or any actual family or frankly any relationship for that matter is that that church and that marriage and that family and that relationship is unified. A Psalm 131 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Jesus Christ said this, listen to this. In John 17, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for also them which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be as one. Ephesians 4 verse 3 goes so far to say that this is something we should be endeavoring to do, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism, one calling, one hope, one uh, faith, one God, one Father of all, which is above all, through all, and in you all. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 puts it in the form of a commandment where he says this, there should be no schism in the body 
No division in the body. In fact, if you were to look at the New Testament church, I think we would say in the book of Acts, there was at least two predominant character qualities of this church. Number one, they were evangelistically fervent. They were about reaching their world and they were about multiplying themselves. Secondly, they were in absolute complete harmony about the said mission of the church. I mean, Acts 1.14 says they all continued in one accord. Acts 2.1, they all continued in one accord. Acts 2.46, they continued with one accord. Acts 4.24, about prayer, they lifted up their voices to God in one accord. Acts 5 verse 12, they were all in one accord. Acts 15 verse 25, it seemed good to us being assembled in one accord. Now listen, no question about it, the strategy and the heart of the New Testament church was that they were one, they were together, and they were unified. You want to know why? Because that's God's idea, that's God's plan. That's the way God wants it to work and work well. And you want to see the church at its purest form. You want to see the church at its most healthy identity. It was in the book of Acts. It was in the book of Acts. This was God's method for them. They were to to be together. They were to hold themselves together. And then, as you probably well know, with every purpose and way of doing things that God sets out for us, Satan always has a counterpart to that action. In fact, one of the greatest military strategies ever created was divide and conquer. In politics or or, or warfare, it means gaining and maintaining power by breaking up larger concentrations of power into pieces that individually have less power than, than the one implementing the strategy as a whole. What a powerful and military strategy to break an army apart, to break a group of people apart and isolate them. And by isolating them, actually destroy them. Listen, it's great military strategy, but it's also enormously great spiritual warfare strategy for Satan in our lives. If he can divide husband and wife, if he can divide parents and children, if he can divide pastor and people or members of a church one for another, he he has well got us into a rhythm that will ultimately destroy what God wants to do. Now listen to me, folks. I know one thing, if I know anything, which is very little, I'll admit that, okay? But if I know anything about church work, here's what I know. I know that when you are in a church where God is at work, and I think you are, If you are in a church where people are being changed and transformed by the power of the gospel of Christ, if you are in a church where people are following Christ in baptism and they are are following Christ in discipleship, then I promise you, if that is happening where you are, and I believe believe that it is, if, oh, oh my goodness, if that is taking place in your church, one thing that you can be absolutely certain of is that there's no way in the world at all that Satan could be happy about what's taking place. And if there's one way that he can bring what is happening at your church and in your life to a screeching halt, the way that he will do that is he will seek to bring about division amongst you. And he will do this in all kinds of ways. In fact, Tom Rainer uh, said there are eight scenarios which create the most conflict in local churches. I love this because when I read this article, it totally blew me away because our church literally did all eight of them, okay? So a relocation, a change in church name, a change in worship style. I don't mean like, like, like a total contemporary style. I just mean it's different. Times of worship service, order of worship service, number of worship service, building programs, involuntary staff changes. These are the top eight things that can destroy a church. And when I read that, I laughed. And when I shared it with my church, I laughed out loud with them and said, guys, we've done all eight of that. And you know what came out to be true? At that time, I almost laughed because it seemed like we escaped that threat. But now a year on the other side of that, we didn't escape that threat. 
Are you listening to me? Satan will try anything he can to divide you and therefore consequently destroy you. And we better watch out for this. We better watch out for any little hint of it in our lives, any little dissatisfaction, any little rub in our spirit about something that we don't like or something we're not comfortable with, or, or maybe it's just maybe an issue of sin that's kind of rubbed between me and somebody else. And truth of the matter is that we need to be on guard about Satan destroying the church by dividing the church. I want you to see, first of all, in verse number 10, that Paul gives an appeal for unity in the church. Verse 10 is very plain. I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, the authority now he's going to mention, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ is the real solution for any disunity in a church. If we are rallied around the only name, the name above all names, it is the one thing that we can all center our lives on. It's the one thing that can and only the one thing that can bring about unity in the body of Christ. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul encourages these people to be of the same mind. He notices he said, that ye all. And listen, I've been guilty of this before, and I think sometimes church people can be guilty of this too. We're not talking about uniformity. We're talking about unity, and there's a difference. Uniformity is everybody's got to look exactly the same and, and like the same exact things and have the same exact set of uh, uh, ancillary beliefs or whatever. When that happens in a church sometimes, what happens is it becomes a subculture church. You don't want to be a subculture church. You don't want to be a subculture that's caught up in one little thing that one person likes and one little thing that another person likes. He's not calling for uniformity that everybody looks and thinks exactly the same. He's talking about unity around the one thing that matters more than all the other little things, and that's the person and work of Jesus Christ. He begs them to be knit together, to be uh, melted together, to be... Uh, to be in harmony one with another. This, this word being knit together uh, is used of bringing hostile parties together as one. Uh, he, he wishes them to be knit together. It's also used as a, as a medical word, uh, speaking of knitting or mending bones that had been broken. Disunity in the body of Christ, listen church, is unnatural and it must be cured for the cause of Christ and the glory of Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer gave this illustration about piano tuning. He said, if it ever, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned one to another? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to the tuning instrument. Now, folks, listen, I don't know how many people are here, and I don't have time to count, but I would tell you this tonight. I guarantee you in this room, it is absolutely for certain. There would be as many people are in this room as are many opinions in this room about a whole bunch of different things. And if you are not careful, here's what you will expect. You would expect that other people in your family, in your home, in your church are all tuned to your fork, but that's the wrong tune, the wrong tuning instrument. If all of us are tuned our instrument to one person and one work and one identity, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the very fact of the matter is we will all naturally be in harmony. And so here's the appeal that Paul makes. Do not get sidetracked. Do not get sidelined. Do not let things unnecessarily pull you aside from family, from church, or whatever the case may be. How do you do that? You keep your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So it's amazing. As many as hundreds and thousands of worshipers can meet together, each one looking to Christ, and yet in heart, they are nearer to others in the room as they could possibly be, not because they're exactly alike, but because they have the exact same goal. So number one, there's an appeal to unity in the church. Number two, there was the disruption of unity in the church. The disruption is in verses 11 and 12. Consider the significance of the problem in verse number 11. It says, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. It came to the apostle from a concerned family. Now get this, folks. This is one of Paul's very first writings. And this church, this church had a multitude of problems, right? I mean, I don't know if you've been through that book yet in your studies in your church, but I will tell you this. When you study the book of 1 Corinthians, it is a major problem book. In fact, there's very little light in this book at all. It is negative from from verse number one of the first chapter. And when you boil it all down, when when you really get down to the root of what really was the problem, the Bible says the church was carnal. That carnal means they needed to grow up. They were still acting like babies. And uh, as babies, they, they, they should have been grown up, but they weren't. And they were basically living after their flesh and not after the spirit. And, and listen, I'm not exaggerating when I say that this church had mega problems. It did. I mean, you go to chapter, uh, chapter number five, for instance, and there, 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 are, there are serious cases of immorality in the church that they were actually tolerating as if nothing happened. In chapter six, there were these disputes about... Um, about financial matters, particularly lands, selling and trading lands, and, 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 and they were taking each other to court. In fact, Paul says, look, man, you'd be better off to just lose your land rather than losing your relationship with your brother. They're suing one another in the court of, the, the, of, of unsaved people and unsaved judges. They're fighting out there. It's crazy. You go to chapter 7, and the single people are acting crazy. I mean, they're, they're, they're messed up and their relationships one with another. They're not married, but they're trying to act like they're married. You go into chapter 8 and then it gets worse. Chapter 8, you got, you got Jews in the church and Gentiles in the church. and They can't figure out how to get along. Do you know that in, there's three whole chapters in that book devoted to just trying to get along one with another in the church because some people had a religious background, some people had a pagan background, and they didn't know how to act one to another. It was absolute insanity. You get to chapter 11... And the women are rising up and trying to take over leadership in the church. And then Paul says, y'all, y'all ain't even doing the Lord's Supper right. I mean, it's chaos. And then when it came to public worship, everybody had a gift. Everybody wanted to speak in tongues. Everybody wanted to be a prophet. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then in chapter 15, they didn't even have the resurrection right. This is a royal mess. But this is interesting. The first thing he talks about, and he takes four chapters to talk about it, is the disunity of the church. Consider how significant that is. Four chapters from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way down to the end of chapter number 4, he talks about one thing. Don't be focused on men. Don't be divided over men. Keep your eyes on Christ. And he pounds this over and over and over again. And it's so significant that he takes four chapters of this book to develop it. And then on top of that, there was a family in the church, Chloe, who probably hosted a home site for the church because they hadn't built buildings yet by this time. And Chloe has spoken out and written, evidently, a letter to the Apostle Paul because this problem was so big, it had surfaced in the church and everybody was concerned about it. And by the way, if there's any disunity in the church, we should be concerned about it. 
It's amazing how easy it would be for us to dismiss division as a minor issue when, in fact, the contrary is true. I'm just going to give you these to write down and study for later. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Put things like division and evil speaking and slander in the same category as every evil, sensual, or sin of any kind you could ever think of and puts them in the same category. Isn't it amazing sometimes how we categorize sin. We think this kind of sin's bad. Why? Because maybe it's a social taboo. But folks, sometimes I'm here to tell you that what God views as, as seriously problematic is oftentimes what we tend to brush off as if it's not really that big of a deal. This matter of division in the church is a serious, serious problem. So the significance of the problem is that it took up four chapters of this book. It also had affected this family so bad that they wrote Paul about it. And he, and he took the time to answer this question and deal with it. But what was the source of the problem? Where did this problem, I mean, where can division come from in our lives? I got two sources of the problem. Number one, it came from an unhealthy view of men. Look at this, if you will. Look down here at verse number, uh, verse number 12. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. There's four distinct divisions in this church. And you want to know what these divisions were about? They were all centered on? They were all centered on a man. Now follow this. These people had fallen in love with certain preachers and certain personalities so much so that they liked this preacher better than this preacher and they followed this YouTube channel but they didn't follow that YouTube channel and this was their favorite podcaster and not this and this is the guy I listened to driving to work at 7.30 a.m. or whatever. This is crazy. They are following men and I love this. It's so amazing. Watch this. I am a Paul. Paul was the founder of the church. Easy to love him, right? How about this? The original. I pastor a church that was pastored by the same guy for 46 years. I am a Paul. I am of Apollos. That was a whole different crowd. You know who Apollos was? Read about him in Acts 17, really Acts 18. He was the intellectual, dynamic leader, the guy who was wise in the matters of the law. He appealed to a more educated, uh, intellectual crowd. They, they liked him. He used big words. He understood stuff. He, he could dice it up and, and parse out words. And people loved it. If you were intellectual, you liked to pause. And then I love this one. I am of Cephas. You know who Cephas was? Cephas was Peter. And Peter at this time was pastoring in Jerusalem. Now let me ask you a question. Why would somebody in Corinth even care about what somebody over in Jerusalem is doing? I can tell you why. Because there were Jews that were following that original church and they were basically saying there's no church like that church. You know what? If this doesn't sound like what we do today, I don't know what will. And here's even my favorite group of people. You ready? I am a Paul. I am of Paulus. I am of Cephas. And I love this one. I am of Christ. Now, that sounds really good, doesn't it? The only problem is it's mentioned as a negative. You say, how could that be negative? I've heard it and you've heard it. I don't follow any leaders. Well, the only problem with that is that you're supposed to. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Listen to this. Hebrews says, obey them which have the rule over you. 
Submit yourselves to them because they watch for your souls. I have met Christians. No preacher can ever do it for them. They're never good enough. There's always questions. There's always criticisms. And the, and the attitude is, I don't follow a man. And I want to tell you, that sounds very spiritual, folks. But the only problem is, it's not spiritual at all. Should you be following Jesus? Absolutely. But in what way do you follow Jesus? In part, you follow Jesus by going to a local church. That local church is led by a preacher that God ordained and put there and when he's true to the word of God and he's following the scriptures and he's following Jesus it is part of my discipleship Amen. and I know in at least a town of my, my town my town right now that I live in there are eight Baptist churches within one half of a mile four independent Baptist churches and four Southern Baptist churches in a half mile. I mean, at my old building, I'm not kidding. If I was warmed up on a good day, I could take a baseball and I could chuck it at the closest one and probably hit it on a few hops. And with my nine iron, I guarantee you, I could have teed up in the parking lot and whacked the one down the street from about 150 yards away. I know how close they are. I know how easy it is sometimes for us to go to one church and we can't follow this person. We can't follow this person. Listen, don't follow people at all. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ and follow somebody who's following him. Amen. Otherwise, otherwise, it all gets clouded and confusing. I don't think there's ever been a day where there's more potential for this than our day. In that day, how hard would it have been to interact with another preacher from another city? Now, they found a way to do it. But here, how easy. How easy to become a man follower. How easy to become enamored with somebody and something and some ideal and some little strain of some belief. Be very careful. If we are not careful, what will happen is we will become divided over men and not the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, I think this is interesting. They also were divided over baptism. Did you see that? So you get down to the end of that verse where he says, yeah, I'm of Paulus, I'm this, I'm of that. And look at this next verse. The next verse says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then that, that little phrase there just sends him into a whole other subject here. And then he just starts naming them out. I didn't baptize anybody except for this guy, this guy, and this one other person. And, he, and, 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 and did you read it like I'm reading it? I mean, he's, he's literally downplaying baptism. Now, hold on for just a second. I love baptism. And I think it's super important. Two weeks ago, we baptized eight adults. The oldest one that got baptized two weeks ago was in her late 70s. It was awesome. Last Sunday, two days ago, we baptized four more. A lot of young adults in that baptism group. And, and, and when I'm in a staff meeting, that's like the number one thing we're talking about. Who's getting baptized? Who got saved? Who's being followed up on? Why is that? Why are we so passionate about that? Because baptism is the first thing that you do in obedience to Christ after you get saved. Hey, there's nothing wrong with baptism, folks. That's not the point. The point is this. Baptism is not as important. Watch it. As the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. He says, I didn't baptize any of you. Now, how could that be? It obviously means that baptism and the gospel are not the same thing. Is everybody following me here? Amen. They're not the same thing. He, in fact, he says in verse 17, Christ did not call me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Isn't that clear? That baptism and the gospel are two different things? You know one of the biggest problems I see in my town, which is a major southern metropolitan area, kind of like yours, is our areas are filled with unsaved Christians. I'm talking about people who grew up in a cultural Christianity. 
but they're not saved. You want to know one way I find out very quickly? As they'll come to me, and Tanisha did this just two weeks ago. I was at my uh, doctor's office, and, and she, was, she, was, she was waiting on me, and I invited her to church, and she said, oh, I need to come to church. I need to get baptized because I need to get my life fixed. That's what she said. You know what I immediately thought in my mind? She's not saved. If she thinks that baptism is going to fix it, and sure enough, a week later, Tanisha came to my office, sat down, and said, Tanisha, you talked to me about being baptized, and I turned over to Acts chapter number 8, and I said, let me get to something that's a little bit more important than baptism. I read the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. He, he, he's riding along in his chariot. He's hearing the gospel. He sees the water and says, what hinders me from being baptized? And, and Philip looks at him and goes, I'll tell you what stops you from being baptized. you got to believe with Jesus with all your heart. And he confesses, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And they stopped the chariot, and then he got baptized. What was first? Salvation was first, then baptism. And listen, don't get the cart before the horse. That can be a really, really eternally dangerous mistake. But here's the deal. I say this, and I almost sound sacrilegious because I am in a Baptist church. I pastor a Baptist church. Dude, I'm serious. I really am a Baptist. But listen very carefully. Even baptism is not as important as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the main thing you got to catch from this. The main thing you got to catch from this is this, that if you elevate anything, it could be baptism, it could be a personal standard of living, it could be a style of music, it could be a dress code, it, it could be anything. You can name it. It could be any little nook and cranny thing that you found in the Bible that is your thing. And if you elevate anything, anything to the level of the gospel of Christ, here's what you do. You actually bring the gospel of Christ down to a level that is below what it really is. Nothing is as important in the church of Jesus Christ than the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's it. Anything else is going to lead you down a very dangerous road of division. So let's talk quickly about how do we resolve this? How do we resolve this? I think we can say, first of all, very plainly, that we could restore unity in the church by, first of all, repenting of unbiblical and unnecessary divisions. Can, can, I, can, I, can I appeal this to you tonight? Can I say this to you? If you are here and maybe there's some division in your home between you and your spouse, would you please, please, would you please make that right between your spouse and you and the Lord before that thing gets really dangerous? Because that's exactly what's going to happen. And can I say this to any kids, teenagers in the room? If you are letting something, maybe it's something at school, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's an attitude, wedge between you and your parents, can I beg you, beg you tonight to repent of that, to go to mom and dad and don't let anything get between you and your parents because it will be dangerous down the road if it's not taken care of. And can I say this, if even right now in your heart, in any way, any way at all, there is anything right now that is creeping up in your heart and it never starts out loud, it never starts public, it never starts on Facebook, it always ends up there. (laughs) But your dissatisfaction, listen, any kind of petty preferences, any kind of personality cult worshiping, any kind of secondary personal doctrines or little convictions that I picked up along the way that would interfere 
with the mission of Christ in this church, can I beg you tonight to do what verse 10 says? Please, please, please be of the same mind in the Lord. And then secondly, and I've said it probably a hundred different ways, but let me say it plainly. Secondly, how do, you, how, do you, how do you restore this? You place the proper priority on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel and the gospel alone forms the basis of the criteria for unity within the body of Christ. Otherwise, we elevate other matters to equal importance as the gospel or we lower the gospel to a matter of lesser importance. Listen, we believe the gospel, folks, and I'm not trying to dummy down that or in any other way than it is. Look, there's never been historically ever a church that made a substantial impact in its community that did not have a core, rock-solid belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's never been a church that has made a long-lasting impact that elevated something else to that level of importance. Because somewhere down the line, it breaks down. You know where we see it a lot as preachers right now? It breaks down in the family. Because children grow up in a kind of a fog and they see one thing at church and one thing at home, a little division here and a little division there. And when they see that division, guess what they do? They start wondering and questioning and imagining. And the sad reality is we even open up a door sometimes, a door that so oftentimes we try everything to do to keep shut and protected by our own choosing. We actually open it up. And you have got to be careful. The three tenors were singing in 1994 in Los Angeles. I don't like the three tenors, don't know anything about them, but I thought this was cool. They were asked by a reporter in the Atlantic Monthly magazine, how do you guys who are so strong, such competitive singers, how do you keep from letting your competitiveness get between you? They said this very simply, you can't be rivals when you're together making music. And that's exactly true in the church. You can't reach Houston if you are rivals in the local church. You can't lead children when a marriage is not unified, but it's a rival. You can't be what God wants you to be if rivalry and division exist in the body. Let's pray together if we could. I recognize, I recognize that I'm in a young church with a lot of idealism, and I have it too, and I love idealism. Biblical idealism is great. But listen, let's also not be, let's not be naive about the possibility of Satan stopping unity, of Satan creeping in unawares, Sow in a little discord, a little disunity, disrupting the faith just a little bit here and a little bit there. How many of you would at least say this, preacher, I, I needed the message tonight. Boy, God spoke to me, and I want to endeavor to keep the unity and the spirit of peace in my church. Would you lift your hand? You say, man, God spoke to me about that. Praise the Lord. Would you do this? Would you stand, please? Would you do that? And as you stand, uh, there'll be somebody playing a piano in just a moment. Let me encourage you. Could you come and breathe a word of prayer out to the Lord about that? Would you do that? Just right here at the front, there's kind of a little altar right here with these steps. Maybe you can just come. 
Just pray. Pray together. Pray with your spouse. Pray with, pray with another brother in the church, another sister in the church. Pray that God will allow that testimony to be true in you, in your spouse, in your kids, with your preacher, with the leadership, with your Sunday school class or your Bible fellowship, whatever gatherings you have with the ministry that you have with children or whatever the case may be. God, keep us unified. Help us to have the right perspective. Help us to have the right focus. Help us to put you first and keep you first. And God, please don't let anything come between us and you and us and each other. May God help us to keep his word tonight. 